bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 11th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Douglas Albert Monroe, who was born on this day in 1919. Death in any form is usually pretty tragic. Like, unless you are a complete ambulatory waste of oxygen whose absence from the earth would actually be a major bonus. I'm looking at rapists and people who abuse children and animals right here. Unless you're one of those creatures, your death was or will be a sad thing for your community and the people that loved you. And while death from natural causes is sad enough, death from accident or illness is arguably even more tragic, right? There's a sort of an unfairness about it. And if the person who dies is young and they're killed while protecting the lives of others, that's just a whole new level of heartbreak. This has been a public service warning that today's episode is going to end on a tragic note. Douglas Albert Monroe's story is one of tragedy, but it's also one of bravery and heroism. It's the story of a young man who only thought of others, whose dying words were only to inquire as to whether or not everyone else escaped. So let's learn about Signal Man First Class Douglas Albert Monroe, the only Coast Guardsman in the Coast Guard's 230-year history to ever receive the Medal of Honor. So Douglas was born in Vancouver, Canada to James and Edith Monroe. His father had been born in Sacramento, California, and his mother had been born in Liverpool, England, and they both immigrated to Canada as children. They were married in 1914, and U.S. naturalization laws being what they were at the time, Edith became an American citizen upon her marriage to James. Aside from Douglas, they had one other child, a daughter named Patricia. James supported the family as an electrician, and Edith was a stay-at-home mom. When Douglas was three, the family moved to the small mountain town of South Clee Elam in Washington. Douglas's dad had been offered a job there at the Milwaukee Railroad Electric Substation. South Clee Elam is a super tiny town in central Washington, less than half a square mile, actually. And as of last year, the population was less than 600 people. James's job was untouched by the Depression, thankfully, so the family had a financially fairly comfortable life. Douglas was conscious of his family's position and equally conscious of other people's struggles, and as a boy, him and his friend would go to the forest in their free time to gather wood and deliver it to poor families who couldn't afford coal in the winter. Douglas grew up there in South Clee Elam, and from everything that's been committed to record, he was just an all-around great kid. He was in the Boy Scouts, he was on his high school's wrestling team, he was in the Sons of the American Legion Drum and Bugle Corps, and he could play drums, trumpet, and harmonica beautifully. After his 1937 high school graduation, he chose to attend nearby Central Washington College of Education, which is now Central Washington University, because it was close enough to South Clee Elam that he could still participate in his Sons of the American Legion activities. The college is in Ellensburg, Washington. That's about 23 miles southeast of South Clee Elam. While he was at college, he was also a Yell King. A Yell King is what they used to call male cheerleaders back then. By 1939, the idea that the U.S. was probably going to be getting dragged into World War II one way or another was becoming more and more obvious, so Douglas chose to leave college and enlist. Out of all the possible branches of the military, he chose the Coast Guard. His reasoning being, according to what his sister said that he told her, was that the Coast Guard were the one military unit that focused more on saving lives than taking them. Both Monroe and his sister were pretty gangly, and Douglas had to actually binge eat the week before just to weigh in uh, and enough to qualify. 
While he was going through processing in Seattle, he met his new best friend, a guy named Ray Evans. Ray Evans was a Seattle native, and he was put in charge of the 12 recruits as there was no real Coast Guard training station in 1939. So the group uh, was bussed down to the Coast Guard air station at Port Angeles, a large city on the north central coast of Washington, just south across the Salish Sea from Victoria, Canada. So since they were all new recruits and the Air Force had no idea what to do with these boat guys, the men spent their time at the air station doing yard work and peeling potatoes and cleaning airplanes. After a week of this, an announcement was made that there were seven vacancies on the three-year-old USCGC Spencer. This type of battleship was called a Treasury Class Cutter. And the Treasury class part refers to the fact that each ship was named after a Secretary of the Treasury. This one was named after John Spencer, who served under President Tyler in the 1800s. A cutter ship was a warship that was used as either a destroyer escort, a gunboat, or a seaplane tender. The ships were also known as 327s because each one was 327 feet long. So Ray and Douglas jump at the chance to stop mowing lawns and oiling propellers, and they take two of the seven openings on this ship. At this point, they were thick as thieves, and they became known as the Gold Dust Twins, since they both came from Washington, which was a state widely known for its prominence in the gold rush. Ray and Douglas would serve on this ship for the next two years as signalman third class. Douglas was known for doing amazingly well on his performance reviews, and he was a profoundly likable guy. He once told Ray that he loved being in the Coast Guard so much, and he thought he might want to do it his whole life. And he did. In 1941, as the milk of brotherhood with Japan began to rapidly sour, emergency mobilization began to roll out. The Coast Guard was moved from the Department of the Treasury to the Department of the Navy. Now, if the idea of the Coast Guard being under the umbrella of the Treasury Department sounds like an odd pairing, remember it's because Alexander Hamilton started both of these things. Ray and Douglas both volunteered, and they were selected for reassignment to the USS Hunter Liggett, an attack transport troop ship. These types of ships deal with primarily bringing invasion forces to the shores of countries. This particular boat was a 535-foot ship that had been in the water since 1921. It had been working for the U.S. Shipping Board for about two decades and then was handed over to the War Department in 1939. Ray and Douglas were now officially part of a somewhat misguided plan called War Plan Orange, which we need to sidebar on for a little bit here. So this War Plan Orange was a joint venture between the Navy and the Army to handle the growing issues with Japan. Uh, the issues with Japan, by the way, if you forget this from high school, they didn't just kind of start with World War II. There was sort of weird tension going on even as early back as the 1800s between the U.S. and Japan. So this idea actually came up in 1897, this idea of how do we prepare ourselves for an eventual conflict with Japan. It didn't become an actual plan until 1911 uh, when Rear Admiral Raymond P. Rogers was like, okay, let's take some steps forward with this. And it was officially adopted, like put into place in 1924. But what happened during that time was that the Army and the Navy didn't take into account how rapidly naval warfare evolves, basically. And Between 1911, when the plan was sort of developed, and 1941, when they went to execute it, there was a lot of changes to naval warfare. Like submarines were way more advanced. There was air support and aircraft carriers. 
all this kind of stuff had changed drastically between in, in those 30 years. So they didn't really account for that at the inception of the plan. The plan also called for a giant theatrical showdown, like a grand finale, basically, between the U.S. and Japan. And that never came to fruition because instead of doing that, we just bombed them. So however, some of their strategies and ideas did end up proving helpful to the U.S.'s strategy in the Pacific theater, uh, including the Battle of Midway in June of 1942. And they also utilized the plan's idea or strategy of island hopping. Island hopping is also known as leapfrogging. In the Pacific theater, there were lots of islands, obviously. Some were neutral, some were allied, and some were Japanese-occupied. The island hopping would allow U.S. troops to quickly reach Japan without wasting time and lives by having to stop and fight at every Japanese-occupied island on the way. The original idea was that between the Philippines and the islands with U.S. outposts on them in the Western Pacific Ocean, there'd be this kind of blockade that would hold down the fort while troops were mobilized in California and Hawaii because warships were kept at 50% crew level during peacetime. And these mobilized troops would leave California, stop at Hawaii, and then they would head over towards Japan, and they would go there and they would relieve the troops in the Philippines and Guam. Then there'd be this huge air, land, water battle with Japan, and then a blockade of their islands. That was the original plan. During World War II, they carried out some of these components. They did the leapfrogging, like we said. They also liberated the Philippines, and they did form a sort of blockade, but the giant showdown, like we discussed, didn't actually happen with Japan. So Ray and Douglas are part of this grand master plan, and they're on this ship getting ready to shove off. And in 1942, they were part of something called Transport Division 17 that was headed to the Guadalcanal campaign. Guadalcanal is located in the Solomon Islands, about 1,700 miles northeast of Australia. The Navy was expecting to launch amphibious attacks, and since they were short on coxswains, a coxswain is the person that's in charge of a boat's uh, steering and navigation, they were short on coxswains, and they needed a small, a few, I guess, small boat handlers. So Douglas and Ray volunteered for this mission. Since Douglas had training as a signalman and now also as a coxswain, he was given orders to ferry the troops to the coast of Guadalcanal as part of the third attack wave. The Marines had lost 80% of their first wave troops to enemy gunfire. So he was supposed to ferry the troops to the coast of Guadalcanal, beach the boat there, and then join up with a Marine unit to assist with ship-to-shore communication. This movement ended up being ultimately successful, and Douglas ended up volunteering to work at Naval Operating Base Cactus. It was usually just referred to as Knob Cactus. Cactus was uh, the military code word for Guadalcanal. It was on Lunga Point, which is on the northern edge of Guadalcanal. Knob Cactus was the heart of communication uh, between the men on the island and the boats off the coast. Douglas chose to take this assignment because he was very fond of the man in charge of Knob Cactus, a guy named Coast Guard Commander Dwight Dexter. Douglas, uh, Ray, and another Marine Master Sergeant named James Hurlbert lived together on the island in an 80-square-foot shack they built out of scrap material and packing boxes. Hurlbert later said the shack was, quote, quite a swank establishment for Guadalcanal. Oh, I love the word swank. Douglas seemed 
to never be able to sit idly by while there were people in danger. And on September 20th, 1942, he volunteered to lead a search and rescue mission for the men on a Navy plane that had been forced down off the coast of Savo Island, just north of Guadalcanal. While attempting to rescue the men, his boat came under heavy Japanese gunfire, and after some of the crew were injured, Monroe turned the ship around. No one was seriously injured. The Navy plane occupants ended up being rescued later by a flying boat. Flying boat. Uh, Imagine like a Baloo's boat plane from the Disney cartoon Tailspin. That's a flying boat. One week later, exactly, on September 27th, Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller, don't ask, decided to attack the flank of the Japanese who were holed up on the west side of the Manatikau River. He ordered three marine companies, roughly 500 men, to fill up eight Higgins boats and two landing craft tanks. Douglas was put in charge of this operation. The USS Monsoon was uh, first approached the area that Douglas and the others were to land at and did a beach clearing ship to shore bombardment, allowing the amphibious force to land and begin to push into the heart of the island. Douglas was ordered to pull his boats and the injured marines and sailors on board back to Lunga Point. While this was happening, the Marines that had come ashore as part of the amphibious assault from the USS Monsoon were surrounded by Japanese soldiers and stranded on a hill under heavy gunfire. According to Ray's later oral history of the day, the troops that had come ashore had come ashore in a different location than they planned because the original area that they were supposed to land in was surrounded by water that was too shallow. The battalion chief in charge of those troops had been instructed by communication from the USS Monsoon that as soon as the troops landed, they needed to bear left into the island to compensate for the altered landing location. Unfortunately, right as soon as the battalion chief received the message, right when he was turning to tell his troops the change of plans, he was shot in the neck and killed by a Japanese bullet. So his men didn't get the message, and they plunged straight ahead into the island instead of going left. The troops rushed up a hill, and they came out into a field against a ridge where they found themselves completely surrounded by Japanese troops in single-man foxholes. The Japanese opened fire, and uh, they pursued the Marines as they rushed back to the beach, and 25 Marines died during this, this terrifying retreat. The USS Monsoon opened fire on the Japanese as they poured into the beach, trying to drive them away from the Marines. Uh, The USS Monsoon managed to blast a clearing through the Japanese soldiers swarming over uh, the beach. And back at Lunga Point, Commander Dexter asked Ray and Douglas if they would take charge of the rescue mission. Douglas's verbatim response was, hell yes. Douglas led his boats towards the recovery point. And suddenly he was besieged by enemy gunfire from uh, the ridge that the Marines had been chased off of. Douglas used his air-cooled 30 caliber machine gun on his landing craft to deliver suppressing fire at the Japanese, which would allow the other boats to hopefully swoop in and rescue the Marines. Suppressing or coverage fire is basically just firing guns at the enemy to try and distract them from killing your your teammates. It's probably a really bizarre comparison to make, but it's like that scene uh, in Cinderella, the cartoon version, where Jack the Mouse distracts Lucifer the cat by sticking his hat out of the hole in the wall so Gus Cus the Mouse can escape with his corn kernels. So Douglas is essentially trying to turn the barrage of bullets coming from the Japanese away from the other rescue vessels and towards himself. He then veers his boat towards the shore, crossing between the Japanese on the beach and the other rescue vessels, turning his boat and his body into a shield. His daring tactic worked, and the Marines managed to make it from the clearing in the beach to the rescue vessels. 
As Douglas was maneuvering away, one of the two landing craft tanks got stuck on a sandbar. Douglas ordered the other landing craft tank to swing around and rescue that boat. So the Japanese turned their gunfire towards the stranded ship, and Douglas once again swung his boat around and put his vessel between the enemy gunfire and his crewmates. Ray was nearby in another boat, and he saw the water spouts as the bullets began to make their way towards Douglas. And the way Douglas was facing, he didn't see them, and his engine was so loud that he didn't hear Ray screaming at him to get down. Ray saw the bullet enter the base of Douglas's skull. Douglas lost consciousness immediately. Ray jerked his craft back towards Douglas's, beached it, jumped into Douglas's boat. Douglas opened his eyes for a minute and looked up into the face of his best friend. And Douglas whispered, did they get off? Ray, overcome with grief, could only just nod in affirmation. And the 22-year-old Douglas smiled slightly, closed his eyes, and died. The two other men on Douglas's boat had also been shot, but they were not mortally wounded, and they continued to protect their fellow crewmen until everyone, except for Douglas, was safely away from the island before they returned to the naval operating base. The landing craft tank was freed a few minutes later, and the flotilla departed. The following day, September 28, 1942, Douglas's body was laid to rest on the island of Guadalcanal. Ray made the grave marker himself, a cross made out of wood. Douglas's heroism was first reported in the Seattle Times on October 15th, roughly two and a half weeks after his murder. The article discussed his bravery and how his actions saved the lives of dozens of men. But what the article didn't mention was that he had been killed because his family had not been notified yet. Four days after the article was published, on October 19th, Coast Guard officials knocked on the door of James, Edith, and Patricia Monroe with the worst news any family could ever imagine. On November 1st, a memorial service was held at the Holy Nativity Episcopal Church, the same church where he'd been baptized as a baby. Colonel Chesty Puller, who had ordered the attack that killed Douglas, nominated him for the Medal of Honor, and Douglas was awarded it, the first and only ever given to a Coast Guardsman by FDR in early May of 1943. The award was given to Douglas's parents in a ceremony on May 24th. A few hours after she received it, Douglas's mother, 48-year-old Edith, was sworn into the Coast Guard. They were unsure about taking her on due to her advanced age and her recent horrific loss, but she persisted, completed boot camp, and eventually retired with the rank of commander. Douglas's sister Patricia tried to join the Coast Guard Women's Reserve after Douglas's death, but she was denied entry because she was too underweight. Patricia would go on to name her future son Douglas, and he joined the Coast Guard Reserve. A grave was erected at the cemetery in Clee Elam, which Douglas's childhood friend Mike Cooley walked three miles to every day for 30 years to raise and lower the American flag. Even when he was terribly ill with pneumonia, he walked the three miles to Douglas's grave to raise and lower the flag. When Mike died in 1999, the graveyard installed a flagpole that was lighted at Douglas's grave so the flag would never need to be raised and lowered by a person again. The American flag is supposed to always be put away. Uh, before dark. That's why they put the light on the flagpole. There is an annual military ceremony at his gravesite on the day of his killing. The following tributes and memorials are just some of the few that have been created in Douglas's honor. Three U.S. warships have been named after him. Three Coast Guard facilities are named after him. There are statues and monuments in his honor at the Coast Guard Training Center, Cape May, the Point Cruise Yacht Club in the Solomon Islands, and in Crystal River, Florida. In 2006, he became the only non-Marine listed on the Wall of Heroes at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. 
In South Clee Elam, Washington, there is a Douglas Monroe Boulevard. July 24th was named Douglas Monroe Day in Washington State. The Navy League of the United States created the Douglas Monroe Award for Excellence among the Coast Guard. There's a Douglas Monroe March and a Douglas Monroe Scholarship Fund for the children of Coast Guardsmen. Douglas was also posthumously awarded the American Campaign Medal, the Purple Heart, the World War II Victory Medal, the American Defense Service Medal, the Coast Guard Good Conduct Medal, and a Battle One Star Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal. In 1989, artist Bernard D'Andre was commissioned by the Coast Guard to make a painting of Douglas's heroic last few moments. The painting has a bit of a Norman Rockwell vibe to it, aesthetics-wise, but it's a very chaotic painting, and I mean that in the best way. You can, like, feel the horror and the controlled panic of the moment, and you also get a sense of what the rescue mission looked like, what his boat looked like, all that. I'll put a picture of it up on our Humans in History Instagram page, humans underscore in underscore history, so you can take a look at it if you want. If you want to read more about the life of Douglas Monroe, Gary Williams wrote a 2014 biography on him called Guardian of Guadalcanal, the World War II story of Douglas A. Monroe, United States Coast Guard. And my sources today were Wikipedia, the National Medal of Honor Museum, the National World War II Museum, the USO, the United States Naval Institute, the U.S. Coast Guard Enlisted Memorial Foundation, and the U.S. Coast Guard Historian's Office Oral History by Commander Raymond Evans. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Douglas Albert Monroe. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of novelist Anne Petrie. See you then.